Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. This is a very rich portion of the Gospel of Matthew, so we are actually going to take uh, two different messages to examine this passage. Today our focus will be on the doctrinal or theological implications of these verses, and then next week on some of the practical implications. Matthew 2, 13, A Baby's Destiny. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. When I was about 12 years old, my pastor, Ben Scarborough, preached a sermon on the prophet Samuel's call to ministry. And in that sermon, I became deeply convicted that God was calling me to ministry as well. Interestingly enough, at lunch uh, that Sunday, my parents went around to all five of the Quarles kids and asked what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said, well, I'm not sure I really want to be a preacher, but I think that's what God wants me to be. So my mother got on the phone and called Brother Ben and set up an appointment for me to get off the school bus at his pastorium and discuss this with him. And when I met with Brother Ben, he said, Chuck, do you remember when you were in the first grade, you came up to me one day after the sermon and tugged my coattail and, and said, Preacher, I'd like a job in the church. Can I, can I do something to help? I'd like to 
pick up the bulletins after church is over or clean up the trash. I want to do anything that I can to help. And he said, I've always filed that conversation in the back of my mind thinking God had some special task for you to do in service to his church. And he said, as I've watched you over the years, I've become increasingly convinced, even before you came to me, that God was calling you to Christian ministry. Well, Brother Ben reported this to my mother when she picked me up from the pastorium. And on the drive back home, she told me a story I had never heard before. She said, when you were a newborn baby at the hospital in Tallahassee, Florida, for some reason, you were constantly moving your mouth, just like this. Even after you had been fed, you were just moving your mouth. And she said, a nurse walked into the hospital room and saw you working your mouth that way. And she turned to me and said, lady, I do believe that this young man is either going to be a lawyer or a Baptist preacher. <laughs> she grabbed my little chubby face in her hands and I kept working my mouth. And she said, definitely a Baptist preacher. And probably a long-winded one at that. And the reason that I'm sharing these events with you is I'm convinced that events from my infancy and childhood confirm the destiny that God had appointed for me. And sometimes by examining the circumstances of a child's birth and childhood, you can get a good sense of God's plan for their life. I think that's true of me. I am confident that it is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Matthew chapter 2, the Apostle Matthew highlights certain details from Christ's infancy because they are signposts pointing to his destiny. And when we understand the events of Jesus' infancy, we recognize that he is our Savior, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, who will give us forgiveness of sin and rescue us from our slavery to sin. He is the Messiah, the King who has the right to reign over God's people forever and forever. And he is God in the flesh, the Emmanuel, God himself coming to live among humanity. First of all, these circumstances show us that Jesus is the deliverer who will liberate God's people from their slavery to sin. I'm convinced that Matthew's original readers of this gospel who came from the Jewish synagogue and who became followers of Jesus the Messiah, would have read Matthew chapter 2 with a sense of deja vu. Uh, these accounts would have had a strange familiarity to them. Even reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time, they would have thought, I feel like I've heard this story before. Until that aha moment came and they remembered the circumstances of the birth and the infancy of the Old Testament Moses. As we read Matthew 2, did you notice how many interesting parallels there are between Moses' infancy and Christ's infancy? Think back to Exodus chapter 1. 
the pagan evil king, Pharaoh of Egypt, feared that the growing numbers of Israelite slaves might overthrow his kingdom. And so he ordered the Hebrew midwives to strangle the newborn Israelite males immediately after their birth. And when they refused to cooperate with his command, he ordered that those Hebrew males be thrown into the Nile River, either to be drowned or to be devoured by the very crocodiles that the Egyptians of old worshipped. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like what happens in Matthew chapter 2, where Herod, an evil pagan king, orders the slaughter of male Israelite infants because he fears based on the statement of the Magi that this born king will overthrow his kingdom. And don't overlook the fact that in both Exodus chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, God providentially delivers the future redeemer of his people from this evil threat. Now think about the parallels. In both accounts, number one, an evil pagan king. Number two, orders the slaughter of male Israelite infants. Number three, because he fears the overthrow of his kingdom. But number four, God providentially spares Israel's future deliverer. These parallels are not merely coincidental. God, through these circumstances, is revealing to us that the Lord Jesus is a figure very much like the Old Testament Moses. And that becomes even more clear when we get to a passage, say, like Matthew 2, 20, where the angel tells Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Get these words. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, that portion of Matthew 2.20 is very important because it is a clear and direct quotation of Exodus 3.19. These were words that were spoken to Moses and about Moses from the Lord God when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Now, why would the angel of the Lord take words that were originally spoken to and about the Old Testament Moses and now use them when speaking to Joseph about the Lord Jesus? The angel is highlighting that Jesus is the new and better Moses, that the ministry of the Lord Jesus will correspond to that of Moses in many remarkable ways. And all of this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, turn in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and let's look together at verses 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15, God says to Moses, 
through Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is a prophet like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And by showing these amazing parallels between the infancy of the Lord Jesus and the infancy of Moses, Matthew is shouting to us and the angel of the Lord is shouting to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the prophet like Moses promised by the Lord in Deuteronomy 18. And although the gospel of Matthew clearly implies that, some of the New Testament writers explicitly state that. An example is the book of Acts. In Acts 3, 11 through 26, uh, the apostle Peter quotes this Deuteronomy 18 prophecy and explicitly says that the Lord Jesus is the prophet like Moses, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Now, why is that so significant? I'm afraid that we miss the significance of this because we misunderstand the essence of the ministry of Moses. When we think about Moses as 21st century American Christians, we conceive of him primarily as a lawgiver, don't we? And frankly, that may not be a very flattering title because many of us have a very low estimation of the Old Testament law. But. To the first century Jews, Moses was not primarily a lawgiver. He was a savior. He was a redeemer. He was a deliverer. Why? Because he had been used by God to rescue the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and lead them to the promised land. And this understanding of the ministry of Moses and how it corresponds to the ministry of Jesus is prominent in the New Testament. For the sake of time, I'll give just one example, Acts chapter 7. This is the sermon that cost Deacon Stephen his life. And the main point of the sermon is that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and as such, he is a misunderstood Savior. He is a rejected redeemer. Take a look at Acts 7.25. Stephen says, Moses assumed that his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance, salvation through him, but they did not understand. So who is Moses according to Deacon Stephen? He is a misunderstood savior and deliverer. Then Stephen repeats it 10 verses later in Acts 7:35. He says, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge, this one God sent 
as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses is a rejected redeemer, a misunderstood deliverer. And even though Stephen's sermon is cut short by his martyrdom, it's clear what his preaching point is. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and so it should not be surprising that he is a savior or redeemer who has been misunderstood and rejected by those he came to rescue as well. Here's the point. When Matthew highlights the fact that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, he's telling us that Jesus is much more than just a prophet. He's much more than just a miracle worker. He is the one who will rescue, redeem, and deliver God's people in a manner comparable to what Moses did. But there is a difference. Moses was used to rescue God's people from their slavery to a political power, the Pharaoh of Egypt. But Jesus is a redeemer who will rescue us from another kind of slavery, our slavery to sin and to Satan. And that was clear in the words of the angel to Joseph back in chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Old Testament name for the successor to Moses. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This becomes clear also in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. Matthew explains that the Holy Family fled to Egypt and then returned from Egypt back to the Holy Land in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. If you go back and look at Hosea 11.1 1 in context, you will see that out of Egypt I called my son is a reference to the Exodus. God delivering his son Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the point that Matthew is making when he quotes this Old Testament text about the Exodus is that the Lord Jesus is the new Moses who came to lead a new Exodus. He came to deliver us from our slavery to sin. You probably know that one of the great themes of Paul's letter to the Romans is the deliverance of the believer from slavery to sin. We are no longer captive slaves and prisoners. We have been liberated by the power of Jesus Christ so that we can live life a new and different way. This truth that Jesus is the new and better Moses leading us on a new and better exodus should be great news to every person in this room. Because every one of us at some point in our lives realizes, I have got to change. But the problem is, we cannot change ourselves. Like the Old Testament prophet said, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? No, we cannot change ourselves. 
but Jesus Christ can change us. He sets us free from our slavery to sin and Satan so that we can live life a new and different way. And it may be that we have tried to change ourselves and failed. And we have tried to change ourselves and failed. And we have tried to change and failed so many times we've given up all hope of ever being anything different from what we are right now. But Jesus Christ comes along and he ends sin's dominion over us. He breaks sin's mastery over us. He leads us out of our bondage. And he does it in a way that there is no return. Else he parts the waters of the sea and he closes them behind us. No more returning to the old ways, to the old lifestyle. We are new and different people because we've experienced the new and better exodus of the new and better Moses. If you're looking for a way to escape the sinful habits that have enslaved you for years and years and years, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the only way. The son of Herod the Great, son of the very king who had tried to murder Jesus, essentially in the cradle, is ruling over Judea. He recognizes that Herod the Great may have told his son the threat to the kingdom that he believed Jesus to be, and that Archelaus may take up his father's old ways and try to kill the Lord Jesus too. And so for the safety of the Holy Family, Joseph moves not to Judea in Israel, but to Galilee in Israel, to a place of safe haven. And Matthew tells us that this fulfills what was spoken by the Old Testament prophets. He will be called a Nazarene, Matthew 2, 23. Now, liberals love this text because they enjoy pointing out that you can search the Old Testament far and wide and you will not find a single prophecy that says that the Messiah would live in Nazareth or that he would be called a Nazarene. Na 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 error in the Bible. Well, not so fast. Ordinarily, when we think the Bible is mistaken, it's because our interpretation of the Bible is mistaken. And that is the case here. Notice that this reference to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is different from the way Matthew normally expresses it. Normally, he says, now all this happened in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, singular. But this time, he says, in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophets, plural. In other words, Matthew is not pointing to a single Old Testament prophecy, but to a broad and widespread prophetic theme. What is that theme? Well, the theme is the so-called branch prophecies of the Old Testament. There are many Old Testament prophecies where the Messiah is described as a branch. An example is Isaiah 11.1, 1, 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This isn't the only time that the Messiah is described as a branch. We see it again in the text like Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now here's what we need to know to see the connection. The word that is translated branch in Isaiah 11.1 1, and some of its parallels is the Hebrew word netzer. It is written with the very same consonants that we find at the root of the word netzereth and netzerine. And what Matthew is telling us is that it is no accident that Jesus resided in Nazareth and was called the Nazarene because in Hebrew, Nazareth means branch place. And in Hebrew, Nazarene means branch person. And this detail of Jesus' childhood and infancy is confirming his identity as the promised messianic branch. He is the branch of David. He is the branch of Jesse. He is that righteous branch who is described in the Old Testament as reigning with wisdom and justice forever, judging the wicked and saving the people of God. So not only do the circumstances of Jesus' birth show that he is the new and better Moses leading a new and better Exodus, and he can set us free from our slavery to sin and Satan, the details of Jesus' infancy show us also that he is the promised Messiah. He is the king who will reign over people of every nation, tribe, and tongue forever and ever and ever with wisdom and righteousness and justice. And just as we turn to Jesus as the new and better Moses to be delivered from slavery to sin, we bow before Jesus as the messianic branch, recognizing he is the king who has the right to rule and reign over our lives. And our purpose is to live in submission to him and his great authority. And finally, the circumstances of Jesus' birth show us that he is the virgin-born Son of God, God in the flesh. Now, you already know 
If you've been paying attention for the last few weeks of study through these early chapters of Matthew, that Matthew emphasizes again and again that Jesus is the virgin-born Emmanuel. He is God with us. We saw it in the genealogy in Matthew 1.16. We saw it in the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew 1.18 and following. But it's emphasized here in chapter 2 as well. How so? Well, notice how Matthew repeatedly refers to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 2:13, verse 14, verse 20, and 21. Notice that when Matthew is referring to the Lord Jesus and to Mary, he refers to the child and his mother. The child, not, not a child, the child. There's something very unique and special about this child. And notice as we read these descriptions of the child that he is never identified in terms of his relationship to either Joseph or to Mary. Notice, first of all, that the angel of the Lord says in verse 13 to Joseph, Arise and take the child and his mother. Did you notice that the angel didn't say, Your child? If the prevailing liberal theory about Jesus' conception and birth was accurate, that's what the angel should have said, right? Because the assumption is that Jesus was conceived by a union between Joseph and Mary. But the angel doesn't say, your child, Joseph. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is not Joseph's child. Joseph had nothing to do with the conception of the Lord Jesus. He was miraculously conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. Not only is this child not defined in terms of his relationship to Joseph, because Joseph is not his biological father, even though Mary is Jesus' biological mother, he's not identified in terms of his relationship to her. The angel doesn't say to Joseph, take your wife and her child. It is take the child and his mother. The emphasis is on the child, not Mother Mary or adoptive father Joseph. Now that should strike us as odd. Because in first century Jewish culture, who was the more important parent or child? Parent. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't say honor your son and daughter. Honor your father and your mother. And a child was identified in terms of their relationship to a particular parent. You probably know that a last name in Hebrew involved the expression ben or in Aramaic bar, which means son of. 
So Simon bar Jonah means Simon, son of Jonah. And your dad's first name essentially became your last name. It's where you drew your identity. In light of this background, we would have expected a reference to Joseph's wife and her child. But by expressing things the way Matthew expresses it, he makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is vastly superior either to Joseph or to Mary. Now, most of us in the room are old enough to have experienced the way things go in the good old U.S. of A. And when our kids are little, they're known as, well, those are Chuck's kids. But if your experience is like my experience, I found out that as my kids grew older, instead of people meeting my kids and saying, oh, you must be Chuck's son or Chuck's daughter instead, I would go places and they'd say, oh, you must be Rachel's dad. Or you must be uh, Josh's or Hannah's dad. What happened? Well, they increased and I decreased. <laughs> Originally, I was deemed the more important one, but as they grew older, my steam fell and theirs escalated. But that's the United States of America. That is not how things worked in first century Jewish culture. In first century Jewish culture, your parents and ancestors were always the greater, the more supreme ones. But Jesus is so great that even as a tiny infant, he is recognized as superior to Joseph and Mary. And instead of Jesus drawing his identity and significance from them, they draw their identity and significance from him. How can this be? It's because Jesus is the Emmanuel, the virgin-born Son of God. He is deity incarnate, almighty God in human flesh. Now, do you hear the three truths that Matthew has just emphasized for us again? New and better Moses, he is our Savior. Branch of David, he is our King. The one greater than Joseph and Mary, he is our God. That should sound very, very familiar by now. Because those are the same truths that Matthew has emphasized in the title of his gospel in Matthew 1.1, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus that immediately followed, in his account of Christ's conception, in his account of the vision visit of the Magi? Why does Matthew stress these three truths? Jesus is God, he is Savior, and he is King again and again. It is because that is the essence of the Christian faith. That is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message we must believe in order to have our sins forgiven and be set free from our slavery to sin. Do you remember several weeks ago, I put up the fish symbol of Christianity and explained 
that the fish represented Christianity because the word for fish in Greek, ichthus, was an acrostic that ancient Christians used to explain the gospel to lost people. And the acrostic was iota, Jesus, Jesus, ki, Christos, Christ, the Davidic Messiah, the King, theta upsilon, Theophias, God's son, deity incarnate, God in human flesh, and Sigma Soter, Savior, Deliverer, Redeemer. The three critical points of that gospel explanation used by the early church are Jesus is God, He is Savior, and He is King. And very intentionally, as Matthew begins his gospel, he has emphasized these truths again and again and again because he recognizes that some of us are so dense we won't get it the first time or the second or the third or the fourth. We have to hear it again and again until finally, by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, it dawns on us who Jesus truly is so that we can repent and believe and be saved. I make no apologies for repeating those three great truths with Matthew again and again this week and the last several. Why? Because like the old hymn says, I love to tell the story because those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And we can never hear those critical truths of the Christian gospel so frequently that we become bored with them, are tired of them. The good news never ceases to be good news. In fact, grand and glorious news to those who truly understand it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let me ask you, when you confessed faith in Jesus Christ, was it this New Testament gospel that you affirmed? Was it the ichthus gospel of the early church that you believed or something less? If it was anything less, I urge you, to receive forgiveness of your sin and liberation from your slavery to sin by believing on Jesus now as God, as Savior, and as King. Pray to Him now and say, Lord Jesus, I know that you're far more than a mere man Far more than a great religious teacher, you are the God-man, the Emmanuel, God with us. I confess you as my God. Lord Jesus, I know that I have no hope for forgiveness of sin through anything I can do. My only hope is your death on the cross when you were punished for my sins and my place so that I don't have to be punished. I believe only you can set me free from my slavery to sin and Satan so that I live a new and different way. I confess you as my Savior. 
And Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Davidic branch, the rightful heir to the throne over all. I ask you to be my king. I submit to your authority over my life. I want to live for you. Help me live for you by your power. And when we trust Jesus as God, Savior, and King, we have complete assurance that we are now a child of God. Our sins are forever wiped from His sight. And we will spend eternity with Him. If this is your decision, in just a few minutes, when we sing together, I'm going to ask you to come forward and tell me or tell one of our church leaders, I've confessed faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King today. And we can talk to you about the next steps in the Christian life, answer any questions that you may have, and we can all leave this place today celebrating the fact that the new and better Moses is leading someone else on a new exodus out of an old way of life and into the new. Lord Jesus, we pray that the gospel has been abundantly clear and that you'll work by your spirit to convince all who have heard it of its truthfulness that all would be moved to believe that Jesus is God, Savior, and King. So their sins can be forgiven, their lives changed, and they can have hope for eternity when they die. And Lord, thank you for reminding your people of these truths today. Help us to celebrate them as we go from this place. Help us to worship you throughout this week as our God, to submit to you as our King, and to trust you with full assurance as our Savior, day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.